Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And by Dan Andriaco's latest Sebastian McCabe, Jeff Cody series. The latest title, No Ghosts Need Apply, is now available. Find out more at danandriaco.com. I hear Sherlock Everywhere, episode 226, Sherlockian Collecting. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a strong in a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket officer. <laughs> The game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger street irregulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Well, hi and hello, and welcome once again to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, what have you collected since the last time we spoke? Well, Scott, as you can see by looking at your screen, I'm surrounded by a few inches of carefully curated dust. <laughs> as a man on the move, I would not have expected that, Bert. But, uh, you know, we all we all slack off a little bit here and there. My family motto is collecting dust since 1960. That's excellent. Well, you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, yeah, this, I love the symmetry of that, don't you? <laughs> it's wonderful. This is episode yeah. 226 of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, which means you can find the show notes at iHost.co slash iHost226. All lowercase. That'll take you to the IHearofSherlock.com website, where you can find links and notes and ultimately the transcript of this episode for our listeners who may be hearing impaired. That is what your generous donations via Patreon allow us to do. For as little as a dollar a month, you help support the transcription of all of our episodes. And we've got enough now where we're starting to go back through our archives and put transcripts to earlier episodes. So thank you for contributing to the accessibility of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. And we look forward to many more joining us. Rebecca Romney was a bookseller and manager at Bauman Rare Books for eight years and then a principal at Honey and Wax Booksellers for three years before founding Type Punch Matrix in 2019. 
Since 2011, she's appeared as the rare book specialist on the History Channel's show Pawn Stars. She was also featured most recently in the documentary The Booksellers, which premiered at the 2019 New York Film Festival at Lincoln Center, and which you may have streamed at home during the pandemic. Rebecca is the author of the book Printer's Error, Irreverent Stories from Book History, and co-founder of the Honey and Wax Prize. Her work as a bookseller or writer has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Forbes, Variety, The Paris Review, and more. And she received her investiture in the Baker Street Irregulars as that gap on the second shelf in 2018. Rebecca Romney, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you for inviting me a second time, uh, because I have too much to say, I think. <laughs> I'll stop talking at you about these things. No, no, no. We 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 always love uh, listening to what you have to say. And quite frankly, the last time you were on, on episode 101, that's how long ago it was, um, was 2016, I believe. So five years have elapsed. And in the book selling and book collecting business, that's a long time. It is. That's a generation, really. And that's my pre-BSI investiture as well. That so. is true. Yeah. Now you're even more official. So, um, I'm sorry. I said, I hope you got that snort in there. We should definitely be recording on separate lines so we can actually <laughs> amplify that next time. Um, so, so tell us about what you've been up to in the last five years professionally. Well, let's see. I, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, when I first recorded with you, I was with Honey and Wax Booksellers and we had um, either just started or were planning to start the first year of the Honey and Wax Book Collecting Prize for when the U.S. under age 30. And now we're on our fifth year of that. Since then, I have also um, started my own company based in Washington, D.C. Honey and Wax is in Brooklyn. So if you're ever in Brooklyn, go visit. If you're in D.C., come see me. And um, what else happened? You mentioned the Booksellers documentary and, uh, um, you know, just keeping busy, trying to talk a lot about book collecting. You're, you're doing a great job. So talk to us a little bit about what inspired you after only three years with Honey and Wax to to do your own thing with Type Punch Matrix and, and why the name Type Punch Matrix? Good questions. Okay. So the first was that, you know, when I first left Bowman Rare Books, there, I had a lot of talks with friends of mine in the rare book trade who I knew and trusted about what the best next steps were. And I really wanted to start my own company, but I was worried that coming from a place like Bowman, you have so many privileges, right? Bowman Rare Books is a huge company for rare books. It has you know, about 40 employees, whereas most rare book firms have three, <laughs> three to five. You're considered big if you have five or more employees in a rare book firm, okay? And so what that meant was that I didn't have a lot of experience with things like shipping or um, getting the material insured or all of the things that kind of keep the business running because that machine was already built. And so what I thought about when I was having these moments of, well, should I just jump in and kind of, you know, build the parachute on the way down kind of thing. Um, Heather at Honey and Wax Books, Heather O'Donnell invited me to join Honey and Wax while I was sort of building up that knowledge because her company was relatively new. So I came on as a principal and she and I continued to build her company together. Um, and then partly 
the timing of that happened because I ended up moving to DC to be near family. And by then I was like, I'm not going to keep commuting from DC to Brooklyn. So it's time to let the birdie go out of the nest. And, you know, that's so we still do the honey and wax prize together. We still, you know, show up, um, do book fairs together and all that. Um, but it was, it was time to move on. And this new company I co-founded with Brian Cassidy, who is a DC based bookseller. And um, a lot of that too came from, we came from very different aspects of the trade. He started up in the independent bookstores and scrounging and eBay and built a specialist um, firm. And I came from Bowman, you know, selling in a Las Vegas gallery, (laughs) Las Vegas casino mall gallery. And so we have very different skill sets, very different areas of expertise, um, and we know different people. So together, it felt like a very um, a useful collaboration to cover all our bases. And we've been doing that now for about, what is it, two years, I think? Of course, we started right before the pandemic, so that was awesome. <laughs> well, you couldn't have picked a better time to stress test a business plan, right? Mm-hmm. And what about the name? Yes, thank you for that. Because um, So the name, Type Punch Matrix, refers to what the actual innovation of Johannes Gutenberg was. So the technology of printing has existed far, far longer in places not the West, um, not only in China, but into Japan and Korea. And that includes movable type going back a thousand years or more before the West developed it. Um, What Gutenberg did when he made it practical in Europe in the 15th century is he was casting individual pieces of type using a punch matrix system, which is different than how it's done in uh, the Far East. And that was one of the main things that made it practical to print in the West. And so the idea with a name like type punch matrix is that we're looking to the roots of Western printing, but then we are also trying to capture, in using those words in that order, a sense of fun, excitement, and actually make something quite old and, you know, based in history feel very modern. You know, when people think of Matrix, they think of the movie. Uh, So, you know, I kind of like that. I like the punchiness of punch. And so it was meant to be sort of forward and backward facing at the same time. Oh, you're speechless. <laughs> like I have nothing to add to that. Yeah, I, 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 I was on mute, and Bert was just flabbergasted. So no, I wasn't. No, just just lost in admiration. Those two things don't usually happen at the same time, though, Bert. You <laughs> muted, and you flabbergasted. Well, we should reverse it. Why don't I be muted for a while and you'll be flabbergasted? Then that's that's more likely. Yeah, that that's what you're more likely to find. So, uh, Rebecca, as as part of um, the the Honey and Wax uh, organization, you've kept this up. I know you have a a great relationship there. With is it Heather? Is she she your yes Heather O'Donnell? Still yeah. one of my absolute closest friends, personally and in the trade. She's wonderful. Now. Together, you put together the Honey and Wax Prize, which we talked briefly about on episode 101, but I would imagine you've got a lot more to talk about now with five years under your belt. Yes, yes. This was our fifth anniversary, and we just announced our winners for this year. It was uh, such a good crop of collections. And the thing that's funny about this is every year, 
it can be really hard to judge <laughs> because when you get so many collections, you kind of just want to say, well, maybe we can get more sponsors and we can just give out more money because it, every year we are just so impressed and inspired. And it's one of the things I look forward to most in any given year is, is having a chance to read about these collections. Um, and one of the reasons that I have enjoyed it so much is because of how much that I have personally learned through this process. These five years have been a real journey for me, even as the judge, even as someone who's saying, no, this is what we're looking for. And this is who we're determining is the winner. Because when we started, the idea was that um, the formal high level of our book trade has a very masculine culture. And we wanted to draw attention to women who were collecting in ways that were maybe different from was uh, dominant in the masculine culture of the trade or to women who were younger and who were still getting started but could use some affirmation and some support. And so the idea was both to uh, celebrate these collections that were there and also to model for other people um, not just women, not just younger people, but anyone that these are things that you can do without having a lot of money, without collecting in the way that you see the New York Antiquarian Book Fair that happens in the Park Avenue Armory in New York City, right? You don't have to spend at that level. You can collect in ways that fit your own life, your own choices, your own interests, your own experience, your own background, and that these are worthy collections that they're worth being celebrated and that institutions are interested in them and that what you're doing has value. And so that was how it started. It was really meant to be a statement. And then as we kept getting these submissions, people kept submitting collections that were mind-blowing to me. They would submit something. I'm like, I hadn't even thought about doing that before. That's so interesting. One of our winners, Emily Forrester from a couple of years back, she collects um, fan-made manga. So it was essentially you would go to these fairs and things where it's this big arts community. And the way that you would build your own collection is by trade. You wouldn't even pay anything. You would draw something. You would create your own zines or, you know, fan made comics, things like that. And you would trade yours for other people's. And so, you know, you can build collections without actually exchanging any money at all. And so there were collections like that that were coming in that were really changing my own perspective of what it means to be a collector and how you can approach it. You know, any type of obstacle, people say, oh, I couldn't collect because of X, Y, and Z. There is a collection that was submitted to the Honey and Wax Prize that shows you differently. And so I just felt like I learned so much in that whole process. Now, now if I was a listener listening to you now, and I wanted to learn from the experience of your winners and be stimulated by their creativity and maybe qualify myself someday for uh, a prize, what would I do? So you can find the winners for every year at the Honey and Wax website. If you go to honeyandwaxbooks.com, there is a prize page that you'll see right on the um, toolbar, the menu. Another way to do it is that every year our number one winner and our honorable mentions are um, described in the Paris Review. So if you Google Paris Review, Honey and Wax Prize, you will be able to see every single year, not only who won, what their collection's like, but we also include a paragraph in there of why we liked that collection. Um, and one thing that's been really fun about this 
prize over the years is we give feedback to everyone who submits a collection. So if you're still not sure that your collection is that great and you're like, okay, well, I'll give it a try, like submit it. We will give you feedback um, at the end. We give everyone feedback. And the winner this year actually submitted a collection the first and second years. We kept giving her feedback and this year she came back and won. Fabulous. That is fantastic. Well, we will save our listeners the trouble of Googling anything. We'll have all those links available to you in the show notes as a convenience factor. Um, so have, just just one more thing about that. I mean, um, Rebecca, if you think about it as a timeline over, say, 60 months, have you seen any themes? I mean, have you seen? So initially, the biggest theme that I noticed, which, again, was something I felt like I learned in this process was how collecting is an exercise of autobiography in the form of a treasure hunt. That's what you're doing, okay? You are looking for things that matter to you. Like these these individual books, right? Books don't inherently have the emotional meaning we put on them. That we are bringing that to those books because, you know, say with Sherlock Holmes, it's what you, you know, read with a parent growing up or you remember the first time you read The Speckled Band and and it really affected you. And, you know, we all have those moments, those memories that then we almost put upon these books. These books become vessels for those memories. So they get so emotionally resonant to us. And what that means is when we collect books that have meaning to us like this, we are building up our autobiography on a shelf. I love that. I love that. A collection is an autobiography in the form of a treasure hunt. And, and really for many collectors, the hunt is, is just as enjoyable as the ultimate object for which you're hunting, isn't it? Oh, yes. Sometimes if it's too easy, you know, if it's just a question of doing a quick search and, you know, going into bookseller marketplaces and just grabbing them, then it doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same emotional resonance, right? Because we are thinking, oh, well, I got the book. And sometimes like that is what we want. But other times, you know, you got to work for it and that somehow makes it even more powerful. Absolutely. And and I think collectors um, oftentimes collect stories as much as they collect the objects themselves. And the stories come in the form of serendipity. I was in this bookstore and I was browsing around and I opened this book and out dropped, you know, a letter from, you know, Washington Irving or, you know, something. And, and boy, that's the story that's going to remain with you for the generation. And this is how we kind of signal to other people, whether it's other collectors or people who are coming up in the field, about what matters to us. Right. And it's also, there's a sense, too, when we create those stories through the process of collecting, you know, they take on that additional meaning to us. But I would encourage anyone who who does this, who collects the stories along with the books to write those stories down, you know, put it on a piece of archival paper that then you can put with the book, for example. And that way, you know, you, again, you were doing your own version of sort of journaling of creating your autobiography that those activities. And I think this is one reason the prize has been really appealing to people. It forces people to sit down and say, why do these books matter to me? Mm. Right. That's really what I'm interested in with collecting is, you know, I'm glad that you have that great collection, but tell me why it matters to you. That's what excites me. Yeah. We're going to pause here a moment for a quick word from our sponsor. 
Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle have been topics of conversation in the world of literature ever since 1895. Wouldn't it be great to look through all those discussions, have all those articles, reviews, and commentary in one place on your bookshelf? Now you can, because the Wessex Press has published Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman. All the pastiches, parodies, letters, all the columns and commentaries about Sherlock Holmes from 1895 to 1933, from the finest literary magazine of the 20th century, The Bookman, in one place, bringing back dozens of long-lost commentaries about the chronicles of Sherlock Holmes. Don't wait until this handsome volume is out of print. Get your copy of Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman right now at wessexpress.com. You know, you must come in contact with so many books. You know, you've got thousands and thousands of books. You've been doing this for years. So what, what, when you, you know, in the course of your day, an average week or a month, what bubbles out to you that seems relevant to your own personal collection or autobiography? You know, and, and if I looked at that shelf, what would, what would it tell me about you? Or is there a shelf? Oh, yes, there's definitely a shelf. <laughs> there's definitely a shelf. A couple of bookcases, probably. Yeah, yeah. So for yeah. A, a long time, in fact, I, I, this is probably the case when we first recorded, I, I tried very hard to resist collecting personally. I felt like, you know, you don't get high in your own supply, right? right. Like, I will never get a paycheck, paycheck if I am a collector too. Um, and that eventually crumpled with the right thing appearing, essentially. It, there was a moment I had where I said, okay, I guess I'm a collector now. <laughs> so this moment, okay, I will tell you about the moment. So this moment happened um, when I saw an item that, as soon as I saw it, I got really excited. And I also, as a dealer, I knew, I was like, that's worth way more than they're asking for. <laughs> and so, you know, I bought it immediately with the idea that, of course, I will, you know, do the proper research, put it in its context, and then price it accordingly where it should be priced in the market. That's what I do every single day. This is how I spend my time, is finding the things that I know that um, I can through the positioning of research or prior knowledge essentially offer for more than I bought them for. It's as simple as that. Um, but in this case, it came and I couldn't sell it. <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to sell it. And this was pretty much the first time that this had happened. And what it was, it was a copy of this book called Native Tongue by Suzette Hayden Elgin. This is a science fiction novel published in the 80s. And I had just recently done research on Suzette Hayden Elgin because um, I'd written um, an article for her about her books for LitHub. And I loved her books because my background's linguistics. I have a, a bachelor's degree in linguistics and classical studies. And she was someone who got a PhD in linguistics. And while she was doing that, she essentially paid her way through while also taking care of her children by writing science fiction. And so in Native Tongue, she creates, she constructs a language from scratch. And it's um, a feminist language. It's meant to um, 
describe concepts that are uh, familiar to the experience of women in the world that are not necessarily represented in our current language. So like uh, there was one word that was, it was really great. Like we now call it emotional labor, right? The idea of, okay, well, when everyone comes over for a holiday, all the preparation that I'm doing leading up to that and all of the making sure everyone's comfortable and all the hostess duties and taking on um, everyone's worries and concerns and make sure they're comfortable. We understand that now is emotional labor, but in the eighties, she coined a term for that when it didn't exist. Right. So I really loved that sort of element of social and linguistic and science fiction. And I loved the book and what this was, so it was a copy, a proof of that copy, like an advance galley that the publisher, Betty Ballantine, was sending to James Tiptree Jr., who we actually know was not a man, but was writing under a male pseudonym. And for a very long time, everyone was like, oh, no, 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 this this writer has to be a man because he writes like a man. And when it later came out that James Tiptree Jr. was a male pseudonym of a woman writer, then people had egg on their faces. And so I loved this association of a woman who, quote unquote, writes like a man, and then another woman in the same genre trying to figure out what does it mean to write like a woman or to speak like a woman. And you can see why this just intersects a number of my own interests, right? I am very aware that I am a woman moving through space. I am made aware of that every single day in the rare book trade, which is a masculine environment. And I have the interest in science fiction ever since I was a kid. And I have the linguistics background. So all of these things came together. And suddenly I was like, I have to keep this. (laughs) Other people are not going to feel this way about this thing. Those are the reasons I feel this way, because it speaks to who I am and who I have become. And so I'm putting that meaning on it. And and so was that one book that launched a thousand ships, so to speak, yes. uh, was it enough to kind of carve out for you a whole genre, a whole area uh, for which you could collect? Because, look, face it. A lot of people think about collecting. They think about this broad, vast array of topics and subjects and everything. But I think the way we think about collecting, it can be as completely fractional or niche as we want it to be. So how did that change your perception of what you wanted to do with collecting? Well, for me, again, in a sort of survival in order to not conflict with my profession, my work as a dealer, I needed it to be incredibly niche because I didn't want my collecting to overlap too much with my business. I didn't want that kind of conflict of interest. Am I buying this for myself or am I buying for the business? And so, you know, that James Tipree Jr. copy of the Native Tongue book started me collecting association copies of feminist science fiction. Right. Another copy, uh, another book I have is I have um, Ursula K. Le Guin's Agents copy of one of her um, Earthsea books. So things like that, where there's a connection between two women, her agent was a woman, and um, it's speaking to, you know, figures that I love reading in science fiction. But I'm also not going to run across those very much in my everyday work. Mm. Another thing I've started collecting is gothic romances. Heaven help me. Um and I am only, though, because they get there so many, there's so many choices that I have limited only to the 1960s gothics published by Ace. I'm collecting that publisher specifically. And another limit I have for that is I'm not spending more than $10 per volume. 
So <laughs> this is fantastic. the thing. You can, you can create limits for yourself. You can make the collection whatever you want it to be. And sometimes those limits are really what makes it fun, mm-hmm. right? Like I spend a lot of time hunting for the Ace Gothics because I'm looking for ones in great condition that I can still get cheap. And that's really hard. And creating those rules for myself, making it harder is what makes it fun. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the notion, uh, as, as you did with your, your, the first collection you mentioned, the association copies, um, this is where that storytelling comes in. And, um, I know we've, we've talked about Peter Blau before, the ultimate, or one of the ultimate Sherlockian collectors out there. If you've been to his house in Bethesda, Maryland, you see this massive collection. And, I mean, you can stand there and marvel over it all day long, but the magic comes alive when Peter stands there near a shelf and pulls off a book and shows you Conan Doyle's own copy. And then he pulls off the next book and he said, well, this was his daughter Jean's copy. And he talks about how it was acquired and all the rest. Suddenly, uh, it's these stories that need to be collected just as much as the items that are on the shelf. So I want to kind of shift gears here with you a little bit and talk about, you know, when, when you see a collector as successful and as broad as uh, Peter Blau, um, how is it that a beginner, a neophyte, can uh, put a toe into the water, so to speak, and not become overwhelmed or not get priced out of the market when beginning a collection? Right. It definitely is intimidating to look at a collection like Peter's that was created over decades of very aggressive hunting. Um, but what I would suggest is that what you bring to collecting, the eye that you have, the opinions you have, the experiences you have are unique to you, which means you are going to see that material differently than other people are. And so, you know, Yes, we might have a shared experience about, you know, we come together as Sherlockians, we talk about our favorite quotes from Hound of the Baskervilles, and that's great. But that doesn't mean that Hound means the same thing to me as it does to you. And so I would recommend that people really lean into that. Think about why it matters to them, not why it matters to other people. And then that's often when you find the little niches that work for you. I mean, um, you all know Greg Ruby, for example, who um, is very much hugely into numismatics. And so he is the Sherlockian coin collector. That is a, a niche he has carved for himself based on his particular interests. And because that is something that's sort of unusual in the Sherlockian world. You don't see necessarily the same types of prices, the same type of competition, right? So if you're really worried about competition, then you just need to go where other people are not because um, prices are determined by demand in this type of market. The higher the demand, the higher the prices go. So and, and what I- are you interested in that? You just you're weird about what are the things that make other people's eyes glaze over when you start talking about it? Put that into your collecting. And and if anything, avoid collecting Sherlockian art. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's that's a losing battle. I'm afraid people stake that out pretty well. Yeah, that, that's one of our <laughs> earliest interviews here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere with collectors. Uh, back on episode 16, we talked to Jerry Margolin, uh, who is the Sherlockian art collector, and he will go to great lengths to make sure that he gets exactly what he wants. Um, 
Now, you, you mentioned the Hound of the Baskervilles. That, that is top of mind for a couple of reasons. One, uh, there is uh, an American uh, uh, heritage auction uh, going on in the next few weeks uh, for a single page, a single sheet from the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, I, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of this, but the manuscript for the Hound was broken up. Uh, upon the book's pub- publication, and as part of a publicity tour, individual sheets were distributed to booksellers all across, really all across the world, not just America. Um, so to be able to find one of these, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. And this is going to auction. I think it's been estimated for $170,000, not what you're going to be cutting your teeth on for any collector. But at the same time, I know last year in your lecture, uh, your Cameron Hollier lecture to uh, our friends up in Canada, um, you talk about our friend Jen Aker and what she collects with respect to the Hound of the Baskervilles. You want to talk a little bit about that and how that's an example of someone setting the parameters for themselves? Yes, I love Jen Eager's collection specifically because of how she defined the parameters. So the two main um, parameters for her, well, first of all, she collects various editions of Hound of the Baskervilles because that's her favorite story, which is correct. <laughs> I'll just let people boo or clap Give them, give them a space, a pause to boo or clap, and then we can move on. So first of all, so she collects, collects the different types of Hannah the Baskervilles. But there are two things that she does about it. The first is that um, she only collects copies that she runs into when visiting bookstores in person. She's not searching for these online. And so that, you know, again, that's adding a little bit of like spice to the hunt. You're making it a little bit more difficult. And then the um, only other way that she adds books to her collection is through gifts from friends. And then you can see you talk about things like stories, right? Each one of those books now has a story. They were either found by her in a bookshop, which is a particular time and place. And there's this sort of, you think of like Proust's Madeline, right? It's just you, you touch this book and it immediately takes you back to that memory when you were in the Strand in autumn of 2019. And, and so you can have that feeling with visits in bookstores, but you can also have that feeling when a dear friend of yours finds a copy for you and hands it to you. And in each of those cases, again, these books become our memories. They become the stories themselves. So I love Jen's collection specifically for that. It is incredibly meaningful without being about money at all. Yeah. What are, what are some other, let's say off the beat uh, collections in the Sherlockian world you've come across. I mean, you mentioned before uh, this this uh, notion of uh, manga art and and creating your own uh, collectibles. And and uh, I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with this right now, but online there's this whole wave uh, through the blockchain of people doing NFTs or non fungible tokens, and these are essentially digital artifacts of of things. Uh, you can't touch them, you can't feel them, you can certainly see them, and there's a, a digital certificate associated with it, almost like a certificate of authenticity of sort. Um, but people are creating things out of nothing to create collections. So talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of uh, new, different, odd Sherlockian collections. So I did cover a few of these in the Hollier lecture that I gave last year. And one of the reasons that I 
felt strongly about including these types of collections is because I really wanted to push on people's idea of what collecting can be. That, you know, as you said, you're talking about that manuscript page of the Hen of the Baskervilles. And that is the thing that gets the headlines. That's the thing that everyone pays attention to. When the rare book world, you know, makes its presence known in the rest of the world, in the real world, it's usually because of a headline from a big item like that that is very expensive and very statusy and impressive. Just, you know, you, it feels unattainable for most of us. And that's not actually what collecting looks like on the ground. The vast majority of collectors are just pursuing their own weird things because they make them happy. And that is what I like to enable. I like to encourage people to just follow their weird. And so I'm, I'm just sneaking. Okay, yeah. So here's an example. Like one person that I had talked about in the lecture, Lauren Messenger, collects Sherlockian-themed perfumes and soaps. And talking about that point you mentioned earlier, Scott, about storytelling, she made a compelling argument to me that she was collecting scent pictures. She was talking about how, okay, a home scent is, quote, fastidiously clean with a dash of pipe and cigarette tobacco. Faintly beneath you catch the fragrance of a smear of grease paint, a stray horse hair, and a whisper of Moroccan leather and rosin. I'm sorry, that's amazing. It really is. (laughs) And so uh, I find that type of approach where you're sort of making the argument, you're advocating for this, you know, and you convince by telling these stories. I find that really appealing. And I think that it's important for us to, to challenge our conceptions of what collecting is. Collecting doesn't have to be hardbound books. It can be zines. Zines, you know, are privately printed. They're circulated in a very different way. They're very often very cheaply made and ephemeral. And that doesn't mean that you're any less of a collector. In fact, zines can be much more interesting than the copy of, you know, Hen of the Baskervilles that every other person has. Um, and institutions often are going to be much more interested because they already have Hound of the Baskervilles, right? Um, so, you know, you don't have to approach it in the ways that I think that we say, oh, this is a collection. Um, I really think that we are attracted to those myths because the headlines keep repeating it. But that is not what it's like when you're actually collecting. Stick with us. We'll be back after this brief word from our sponsor. You've heard them on here before, and now they are back. It is the Sebastian McCabe Jeff Cody Mystery Series by Dan Andriaco. You've heard of the novels No Police Like Holmes, Holmes Sweet Holmes, The 1895 Murder, and more. Well, they're back on September 28th with the latest title, No Ghosts Need Apply. Sherlock Holmes, of course, said to Dr. Watson, the world is big enough for us, no ghosts need apply. But McCabe and Cody, well, they don't have a choice when a popular reality TV show comes to their native Erin, Ohio, to record a Halloween special about some entity that's disturbing the local gastropub known as the Speakeasy. What was expected to be some fun publicity for the pub turns into a nightmare after someone 
is shot to death one night in the same place and in the same way as Jackie O'Brien almost 100 years earlier. The police chief recognizes this is Mac and Jeff's kind of case, but they're forced to become virtual sleuths for most of the time when the restaurant and most businesses are shut down because of COVID. Before he solves the murder and a second homicide, Mac makes an embarrassing blunder in one lesser case and scores a great triumph in another. Make sure you check out No Ghosts Need Apply by Dan Andriaco at danandriaco.com today. Well, and you know, there's so many things. I mean, I'm sure you've come across people who do this, but audio, you know, for example, just in listening to you and in this conversation, I've realized that I have an extensive collection of Sherlockian audio. I must have probably every radio least in the Western world, every radio broadcast and every Sherlock Holmes episode, or all the ones that exist, some were lost from the 1920s up through the 1940s and 60s and the BBC. And, you know, those are things I've, I've sort of unconsciously collected because I love them. I'm a big fan of, of radio. And now talking to you, I realize, gee, I have probably hundreds of those. So, and it's interesting. My friend Chris Steinbrenner, who... Uh, was a, a regular who uh, double, um, you know, noted noted a regular in his in his house in in Little Village in Queens. He had a basement full of reels of film. His goal was to own one of every mystery film ever made, and I think he got pretty close at the time. So this hits on something really critical, which is that most people actually collect, but don't call themselves collectors. And if you just take a moment and, and think about it, just like Bert did, you have this moment, oh, I guess I am a collector. And I, and I want people to feel more comfortable taking on that title and embracing it, embracing what they're doing and thinking about it consciously. Why do you think that is, that people don't refer to themselves as collectors? I think it's because they have a stereotype in their mind of what a collector is, and they don't feel that they live up to that. You know, yeah. I think people think about Peter Blau and they say, that's a collector. And yes, Peter is a collector, but so is, you know, Lauren Messenger, who's collecting those scents. So is Jen Eaker, who's doing the Hand of the Baskervilles, or Linnea Dodson, who's doing the zines. <laughs> These are all collectors in their own way. And it's not actually about, you know, better yeah. collections, bigger, more expensive. Those are not the metrics. Yeah. There's a great way to determine if you're a collector. If anyone in your life has ever said to you, why do you have so many X? You're a collector. And <laughs> and that's happened to me, you know, a lot. Why do you have so many fountain pens? Why do you have so many books? Why do you have so many? You know, Bert, mm. I, I um, went through an exercise because, you know, I tend to fancy bow ties or I gravitated toward those as part of my branding. Uh, I have neckties as well. But people said, how many bow ties do you have? And I said, you know, I don't know. So many, I don't know. So during the pandemic, I had an exercise where I put on a bow tie every day took an Instagram photo of it and documented it. The answer is 142. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so when, when, we, when we think about 
where collecting is going. I mean, look, people have always been collecting. Sherlockians have always been collecting. Uh, just a couple of episodes ago, we talked to uh, Tim Johnson at the Sherlock Holmes collections at the University of Minnesota Libraries, uh, specifically about the Shaw 100. And even in John Bennett Shaw's lifetime, the 100 was was as elastic as John wanted it to be. It, it ended up being like 130. Uh, he constantly edited it, added things, took things off, etc. And we thought, you know what? It, it's probably time for an updating of that because so many of those titles on the Shaw 100, the last version that he edited, are not really attainable for most people. And 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 the idea of the Shaw 100, let's remind ourselves, was the basic Holmesian library. And and I I want to give you a chance, Rebecca, because I know you have a strong opinion about the difference between a collection and a library. But in conjunction with that, as we're thinking about the basic 100 for people, whether they want to collect it or simply put it in a library, where does the future lie with respect to the standards of Sherlockian collecting? Okay, I love this question because I'm going to give you an answer that I know a lot of people are just going to disagree with but I'm going to be on the record about it. And then 10, 20 years from now, people are going to say, Rebecca was right. That's what's going to happen. All right. So um, it is my opinion that we are moving away from a single authority determining what other people must have in their libraries. I think it's great to have a baseline of here are some texts to introduce you to the world of Sherlockians. You know, when I first got interested in Sherlockian societies, I found lists like that very helpful. And I would hunt the, down those articles and I would read them. And that was a big part of how I got started in all of this. And it was, it was meaningful to me. And it was having those resources available was huge. But that is not the same as saying you're not a collector if you don't have these books or this is the basis for any good collection. I don't love that other people get to judge if your collection is good enough. Yeah, I say that even as someone who judges a prize, all right, because you don't collect for anyone but yourself. And if the items on the Shaw 100 do not speak to you, then I don't understand why you should feel obligated to buy them. That's fair. So I... I, I would encourage people to this. And you talked about the difference between collecting and a library, right? Collecting is the mindful acquisition of books and specifically that copy for specific reason. It can't just be any copy of any, any of these books. It has to be specific copy for a specific reason. So it's not, I want, I want the text of the hand of the Baskervilles. It's no, I want the pirated American edition because I'm interested in the fact that American publishers weren't interested in paying Doyle for his labor. Right. You know, I want to hear not just why this text, but why this copy of this text? That's what a collector does, is nails down on that question. And if your answer to that is, because Shaw told me to, hmm. how is, is that really fulfilling to you? I, I, I want people to say, oh, no, actually, it's because I was in this bookshop and it was magical and I didn't think there was any Sherlockian. And then someone pointed this out on the top shelf. That's meaningful to you. And that's the whole point of collecting. Yeah, I like that, this notion of uh, a mindful acquisition, um, as opposed to what my wife calls my library, which is really a mindless uh, acquisition. Um, 
I just think it's easy for checklists to feel mindless. Of course. You know, you're checking things off a list. Like on the one hand, maybe there's a reason that you're doing that that is meaningful to you. I'm not suggesting that, you know, collecting the Shaw 100 is a is not a worthy endeavor. Um, if it has meaning to you, it is a worthy endeavor. Yeah. But I just think that everyone should sort of check in with themselves and say, why am I doing this? That's the whole point of collecting. Well, even John Bennett Shaw in his collecting, you know, he made it very clear that he wanted one of everything. And and yes, he had all the discernment of a <laughs> vacuum cleaner, but that's back then when a vacuum cleaner was the necessary tool. Now, it's impossible. So, you know, if, if somebody wanted to follow in Shaw's footsteps and collect one of everything that Shaw collected, well, okay. You know, that that's at least finite. The guy's dead now, so he's not collecting anything other than dust. Um, and, and you have a reference point. If you go to the University of Minnesota libraries, you can see exactly what he collected and model your collection after that. You'd be insane, but if it brings you joy, hey, go for it. Well, maybe Shaw was incredibly formative to your own development as a Sherlockian. You know, maybe he represents something for you that's that that is meaningful. And in which case, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, but I don't think that it should be a list that everyone should follow because that's what you do. Sure. I don't think that's in the spirit of collecting. That's actually the most satisfying way to collect. Sure. But, you know, many of us find as they discover, as we discover authors, we find a kindred soul and, you know, we become interested. I had that experience years ago with Christopher Morley, reading Christopher Morley's essays. I said to myself, boy, this is a, this is somebody, you know, who likes a lot of the things I like. And he's mentioning this author. So who is that author? I think I'm going to get this book. And it was, you know, through reading what Morley had written that I discovered people like George Gissing and, and David Grayson and, you know, minor and major authors and all sorts of stuff. And so that, uh, it's another aspect of, of collecting, but you know, to your original point, it's why I suppose one of the reasons why I suppose this becomes very autobiographical because these things can contribute to your growth as a person and your character. Yeah. I mean, Bert, we, we've had this conversation before, but you know, my collecting has has honed itself over the years, uh, and it's really gone to that pre nineteen sixty BSI uh, member publications. You know the Edgar Smiths, J Finley Christ, etc. Want to get those, but it's also opened up things like uh, Charles Hans to me, who was a newspaper man and had plenty of columns. And I you know write two essays a week, and sometimes three for my newsletter. And I I feel kind of a kindred uh, spirit. Uh, through through haunts and I, I look for some of his non Sherlockian books now or books that I, I have a copy of this, this Rebecca you'll love this I have a copy of Profile by Gaslight edited by Edgar Smith that Charles Haunts who worked at the Associated Press inscribed to uh, Casey Earl. Ken gosh, oh, right. I'm blanking on his last name he was the general manager of the Associated Press, but it was Hans's copy that he inscribed to KC um, and and talked about being a part of the Associated Press. So to me, that's like, it's just one of those things. That, yes, I was meant to have that, right? And, and it continues, my collection continues to fine-tune itself as I learn more about what's potentially available. So when are you going to start reading Edgar Saltis? Wasn't that also one of Hans's big deals? He just loved Edgar Saltis? Yeah, I've, there's a lot of rabbit holes uh, I'm going to be going down. It could be dangerous. Get moving. I know. Get moving. 
this is something else that I love so much about collecting is that it is a way to learn more about something that you already love in a way that you can't otherwise. You know, so often, you know, you're reading about a subject. And uh, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm writing a book about um, the women writers that Jane Austen read. Because I, I had read all the men authors that she read. And then I found out that I had not read any of the women. So I was like, that seems imbalanced. So I started reading these women authors who were writing kind of courtship novels the way that she was. And the more I read of those, the more it changed my readings of her novels. And I started collecting and learning more about them. And in the process of collecting and learning, oh, wow, in fact, Charlotte Smith went through multiple editions in her lifetime. And Anne Radcliffe was so famous, she was compared to Shakespeare and Milton. And, you know, learning these things while I'm collecting, it's, it's almost like this 3D exploration of the thing that you're really excited about. You know, it's really hard to just sit down and read a book and, and get a history of that. And that, that's great. I mean, I do research that way, too. But it's a different type of research. It's a different type of delving down a rabbit hole when you learn about things you didn't even know existed in the process of collecting. That's fantastic. I, well, I have a question, the last question. Oh, I'm cu- curious about... Um, ESG, about environment and sustainability and so on. Has that intersected the collecting world yet? I mean, have you seen that? I mean, a little bit. One thing that a lot of people in the trade talk about is that this is a much more environmentally um, responsible way to run a business than a lot of other businesses because we are recycling material, essentially. Right. And then there are scholars and collectors who are working in this field. Um, I went to an amazing lecture by Brooke uh, Palmieri, who's a scholar, uh, printer and bookseller in the UK and camp books. And they were talking about all the different ways that you can um, create books and material that are ecologically responsible, like paper made from mushrooms. Just take that in for a second. Isn't that amazing? Well, you you yeah. happen to have a uh, Sherlockian book that's created out of ha- a uh, Hawaiian shirt, right? I do. I recycling. You know, I love it. I love it. So you know, we we we're green in our way. <laughs> what happens if I had a Sherlockian book with paper made out of mushrooms? What happens after ten or fifteen years and the pages start to fox? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, the pages are going to fox even for your wood pulp paper too. So, well, yeah, but I mean, can I sort of hold the wave the book over a salad? I mean, <laughs> well, that freshen it up. Yeah, this is Bert. This is why, in in your collection like that, you need to season your books with truffle oil. Oh, right? thank goodness! Yeah. I wondered why I was doing that. Absolutely. So, uh, so Rebecca, uh, next, what, what, what's the next biggest thing? What, what, what are you working on next? Where do we see uh, Type Punch Matrix uh, coming in here? Well, so TPM, we keep plugging away. We are actually building a decent amount of material related to um, 19th century detective fiction. That's something, obviously, I am interested in it. And as a dealer, this is the other way you collect as a dealer, right, is you just healing it <laughs> so we're handling more and more of that if you're interested in that come to the website typepunchmatrix.com um i already mentioned i'm working on the jane austen book um but the last thing if i were going to just summarize the most important aspect of um what i tell people when i talk about collecting is that 
do not let your preconceived notions of what a collector is or a collection is get in the way of doing something if it brings you happiness. If you enjoy hunting down something, if you have a particular topic that you think is awesome and no one else does, that's the perfect thing to collect. If you're not sure you're a collector, I'm sorry, you're a collector. Like you're, I know you're struggling with that label. Let the struggle go. Just join us. <laughs> love it. I love it. Well, Rebecca Romney of the Baker Street Irregulars and Type Punch Matrix and all these other bits of fame, thank you once again for being with us here on I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Happy to speak with you two again. Thanks. What fun. And I hope that some of our listeners who may be a little uncertain about their own collecting, about their identity as a collector, about how they feel about collecting, are as, um, you know, inspired and upbeat as I am after after talking with Rebecca. Oh, I know. I mean, there's there, there's so many opportunities, you know, We and we don't give ourselves enough credit for this. I, I think Rebecca's uh, recommendation to... Uh, you know, just start wherever, you know, and, and look around. You, you're, you're probably already collecting something. You don't know it. Um, it's a fantastic reminder that, um, you know, we, we are probably capable of more than we give ourselves credit for. Yes. Well said. Well said. Hmm. Well, you may recall us speaking to playwright David McGregor here on episode 140 the good news is our friends at MX Publishing now have some of David McGregor's work in stock. Three new books by David McGregor, including Sherlock in Love, the Holmes Adler Mysteries. These are a triptych of plays that first appeared at the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Michigan. The Adventure of the Elusive Ear, The Adventure of the Fallen Souffle, and The Adventure of the Ghost Machine. All three are creative and bring Holmes into contact with other people whom you may have heard of, including Vincent Van Gogh, Auguste Escoffier, and Tesla and Edison. Adding to the other group of books is David's two-volume series, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In these books, David takes us on a journey through the late 1800s early 1900s through the end of the 20th century and into the 21st as Sherlock Holmes has been played by so many different actors and was brought to life by so many different forces. David takes us through these various times and introduces us to names that you may be familiar with and names that may be new to you. All three of these books are available at mxpublishing.com today. Well, I wanted to make sure we had an opportunity, you and I, uh, Bert, to talk about something we promised a couple of episodes ago, and that was to compare our Shaw 100 lists. We said we, we would go through it and uh, kind of look at what uh, we were missing, what we had, etc. cetera. Uh, you have your checkli checklist. I have my checklist. I put together a comprehensive list um, of the things that you have that I don't of the things that I have that you don't, and the things that neither of us have. 
And I thought, wow, what a great gift idea for our listeners to get us for the holiday. <laughs> oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> I love that. Um, so you had, how, how many items did you total up of the Shaw 100, of which there were actually 130? How many think, were on your list? I think 73 I had. 73. I, I, had, I had 86. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And Agent eighty six. Agent eighty six, and and there was there was a little bit of overlap in terms of the things that neither of us had. For example, um, because we are not Minnesotans, I look at item number ten on the list: the uh, Sherlock Holmes Master Detective, printed for the Norwegian Explorers by uh, Ted Blagan and E. W. McDermott, nineteen fifty two. Uh, it's one of those society publications, and there's a few more of those uh, that we'll come across uh, throughout. Um, let me see. We had, oh gosh, you have uh, a couple of, uh, you got a Michael Hardwick, The Complete Guide to Sherlock Holmes. For some reason, I don't have that. That's, that's an odd one. Seems like a pretty main one. Um, you also have uh, a Michael Harrison, Beyond Baker Street, a Sherlockian anthology from 1976. I don't have that. Um, neither of us has Irving L. Jaffe's Elementary, My Dear Watson, uh, from 1965. Um, you have Howard Haycraft's Murder for Pleasure, The Life and Times of the Detective Story from 1941. That sounds like a really good one. Oh, it's great. Well, I was thrilled because he was one of the early people who was there at my first BSI meeting. Hmm. See? And uh, I was stunned that, that... no, I think I said that. You're someone whose name I'd only seen on the spine of a jacket, on the spine of a book, and here he is. That's that's amazing when you can make those connections, right? Paul Herbert, The Sincerest Form of Flattery from Gaslight Publications in 1983. I have that. Uh, you don't. I'm not going to go through uh, every single one of them, but uh, we have, let's see. Oh, neither one of us has the... Uh, has West by One and by One, an anthology of irregular writings from the uh, Scourers and uh, Molly Maguires of San Francisco. That's from 1965, right? So that's, again, one of those uh, good old society publications. Um, I Actually, I'm, I'm looking here. I'm seeing some... Uh, holiday gift ideas from me to you on this list here. Um, <laughs> oh, good. The the two sons of the copper beaches, uh, leaves from the copper beaches and more leaves from the copper beaches, I don't have. Oh, no. No, I know. Same thing, uh, the illustrious clients, their first, second, and third case books. Neither one of us uh, have those. And then we get into... Oh, gosh, we get into uh, the pastiche area, and I don't think it's any surprise to you that neither one of us has many titles on the pastiche thing, because that's just not something that interests us, right? And, and thinking about what Rebecca said, well, the, the beauty of pursuing the things that you want to means you can leave behind the things that really don't apply to you. Well, also, you know, there's nothing necessarily fixed about collecting. I had read through... When I was much younger, all of the August August Durleth Solar Pond stories, hmm. and I was not sad to see them all go. <laughs> I, and to make space for something I, I valued more, and not that there's anything wrong with them, I enjoyed them. But um, yeah, I, 
I have the solar ponds things because somebody sent the like a complete collection of first edition solar ponds books to me, including uh, a bunch of editions of the Pontine dossier or the, oh, the right, Pontine right. dossier. I remember that. I, I really I have no interest in reading them, but as a collection to have them together like that, I'm like, okay, well, I can see the value there. Um, and maybe if somebody wants to take them off of my hands for the right price, I'll let them go. But at this point, it's more trouble to get rid of them than it's worth to me. So they occupy right. some of the shelf space. But And there, there's a number of, of others. You know, the, the one that surprised me, the one, the one title that surprised me, um, even though it does fall under pastiche, was uh, that neither of us have a copy of Basil of Baker Street. <laughs> Eve Titus, Eve is Titus yeah. Well, actually, I have a copy of Disney's Great Mouse Detective, so that's sort that's of close like enough. Yeah. <laughs> a copy of Basil of Baker Street. But no, I had I'd missed that. I'd miss Basil of Baker Street completely. In fact, I think the first time I heard of it was when the movie The Great Mouse Detective came out. Yeah, same here, same here. And and for a lot of people. Uh, the Great Mouse Detective is their introduction to Sherlock right. Holmes. A lot of younger people have come to it that way, and I think that's that's wonderful. And um, you know, if if that was your intro, then boy, having a copy of uh, Basil of Baker Street might be very meaningful to you as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone knows the sound that that means. It, well, that is the sound. But what it means is it's everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right. It's what we call canonical couplets, where we give you two lines of poetry, and you are supposed to give us the answer as to what Sherlock Holmes story we're talking about. Now, the last time we were around here, uh, I think we gave you this clue. No justice for Holmes's client, nor for hailing lost before. The fiends escape to Reading and elude the grasp of law. Bert, <laughs> do you know which Sherlock Holmes story we're referring to? Absolutely. That's the great case about the musicians who were purposely infected with measles. That's the freckled band. Oh, well, I'm glad they were only freckles. That's that's a good thing. Um, well, uh, no, not quite, not quite. And our friend Eric Deckers wrote in to, with his best guess. He said it's one of Arthur Conan Doyle's more risque Brigadier Gerard stories, wherein our hero Gerard has lost his pants. It's the adventure of the Brigadier's bum. I can't find my copy of that book anymore, writes Eric. So maybe that's not the right answer. It's more likely the adventure of the engineer's thumb. Well, Eric, you are correct. You're a lot closer uh, than Bert at that point. So uh, we did have a number of entries there. Thank you, everyone, for participating in that. Um, and as a result, we are going to spin the big prize wheel goes around and we watch it come round and round and round landing on number 18 number 18 and that is oh my goodness it's ray reithmeyer 
Congratulations out there in Minnesota. Great to have you participating. Uh, we will have a, uh, a prize off to you in the mail. Uh, too sweet, I guess. Did we, did we mention what we were going to choose in the last episode for the prize? I think you said something from the IHO's warehouse. Something from our vaults. It was something three-dimensional, I think can't necessarily promise that it's it's something related to the evidence boxes, but um, it'll be something 3D, so uh, be prepared for that, Ray. (laughs) You know, that's a very big category. (laughs) Well, it is, and and I'm trying to fine-tune my collection here uh, and get rid of some of these things, so you may get a few things in the mail. Who knows? Well... This time around, we have another canonical couplet clue for you, so let's get right to it. Half asleep and half a faint, it was an ease from pain. The culprit was a villain that the science master named. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we pick your name at random, you'll win a prize. Good luck. Now, in terms of what that prize will be, it will be some rarity from our vault, something that we've collected along the way in the spirit of Rebecca Romney's expertise as a book collector or, or book dealer, I should say. I guess she is a book collector, too. Self-admitted. Yeah. 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 Well, that's fantastic. Well, we will be back here. Gosh, it is. Uh, wow. Going to be the end of October for our next episode. Are you are you dressing up for Halloween this year, Bert? Well, you know, it's a uh, COVID still lingers, and the whole dynamic of Halloween has changed. But over the years, I used to love to dress up for Halloween. Mm-hmm. What's your What's your favorite costume that you remember of all time? Oh well, you know, there's always Sherlockian uh, kinds of costumes, but I I used to love uh, to dress up as Teddy Roosevelt. That was a lot of fun. Because I've got uh, some great pince-nez glasses and a great hat. And it gives me an opportunity to lecture the neighborhood kids about the importance of building a canal in Panama. (laughs) And, uh, oh, and then I've got a Star Trek The Next Generation uniform, which um, I love to wear. I haven't worn that in years. But then I can never find the bridge. That's the problem. I'm looking and looking and looking. I know they need me there, but I can't find it. Did you check your mouth? No, no, <laughs> no bridges that's there. The, no, no, that's the Thor. That's the Thor bridge. The Thor bridge. That. Yes, yes, yeah. very much so. Um, well, it should be fun, regardless. Uh, well, what about you? Do you uh, do you dress up? What's the what's Grace's costume this year? What's the, what's the deal? Well, I typically like to dress as a misanthrope and not answer the doorbell. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. We have uh, the most phenomenal neighborhood here because the houses are fairly close together. It it almost feels like uh, Wisteria Lane in Desperate Housewives, very picturesque neighborhood. And everyone here is into Halloween. So uh, we're going to be going from door to door. We have a neighbor across the street. We're on the corner here. We have a neighbor who puts on a show every year. Um, he's got all sorts of things set up in his in his lawn, and he hides behind the hedges in a ghillie 
suit with a chainsaw that he's taking the chain off of, and he scares the the heck out of the kids. Uh, so we really? stand on our porch and watch as kids flee from him and fling their bags in the air, and then we're there to claim the candy as it drops on the ground. <laughs> well, you've got a whole plan here. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like something Homer Simpson would do. Oh, you. I, I wanted extra candy this year, Marge. Did you get the giant Hershey bar? Mm. Oh, giant Hershey bar. <laughs> Oh, homie, why don't you listen? I hear of Sherlock everywhere. Go! Well, uh, until next time, this is the very homely Scott Monty. And this is Edith Bunker saying, the game's afoot. (laughs) Oh, Archie, the game's afoot. Stifle yourself, Edith. (laughs) (laughs) The The game's afoot. I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes.